Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Wondering about Wuhan, was the virus more spread than first thought? No, from Nissan, a third big automaker denies working with Apple. And Japan jumps, growth soars, and the Nikkei breaks through 30,000. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you as always. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day weekend. And for some of us, it didn't end. It's President's Day here in the United States, so markets are on pause. Same in China and Hong Kong, where the Lunar New Year celebrations continue too. The year of the ox in China, the era of the bull in global stocks, the Japanese Nikkei, as I mentioned, Today, closing above the 30,000 mark for the first time, and get this, in over 30 years, fueled by news that the Japanese economy grew at a more than 12% annualized rate in the fourth quarter, helped along by robust exports as consumer spend and businesses rebuild inventory. It echoes what we heard from the Maersk CEO last week, if you remember, too. Europe also following Japan's lead, Italy rising again after Mario Draghi was sworn in as Prime Minister over the weekend. His policy plans are due this week, so we'll be looking out for those. Italian stocks have actually gained over 8% this month amid super hopes for Super Mario and what he can do for the nation. The inflow, more broadly, though, of money into stocks has been pretty incredible. Investors pumped a record $58 billion into global equity funds in the most recent week's data, providing extra fuel for the bull run amid expectations of more U.S. stimulus, smoother vaccine rollouts, unaccelerated, of course, and declining COVID infections. The latest World Health Organization numbers show global COVID cases falling 17%, the fourth straight weekly drop. Hopeful signs, it seems, for spring and summer reopenings and recovery. Let's get to the drivers and the latest search for signs about how the pandemic may have started. More questions, fewer answers. Over the access and data China gave to the WHO investigators in Wuhan, their findings suggest the coronavirus outbreak was larger than previously thought. The United States and UK now raising concerns about the information from the early days of the outbreak. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh spoke exclusively to the lead investigator. The leader of the WHO mission to China investigating the origins of the coronavirus has told CNN the virus was likely much wider spread in China in December 2019 than was thought. Peter Ben Embarak revealed the 174 positive cases found that first December, likely severe cases, meant there could actually have been an estimated thousand plus total cases in and around the city of Wuhan that month. 
the virus was circulating widely in Wuhan in December, which I think is a is a new is a new finding. And the hundred are laboratory confirmed, and the seventy four are uh, clinically diagnosed. Confirmed. That one hundred and seventy four would suggest a thousand or so plus, even. Yeah, uh, probably, um, really likely. Yeah, uh, because that's. Again, uh, that would fit with all the other parameters that uh, that we have looked at. The team also established that in that first December, there were as many as 13 slight variations of the virus from samples of all or bits of its genetic code circulating in and around Wuhan, where this seafood market is thought to have played a role. We have 13 strains covering... Um, covering uh, individuals uh, in December. Some of them are from the market or into the market, some of them are not linked to the market. So this is something we found as part of our uh, mission. That many variations so early on could suggest the virus had been circulating for some time, some analysts told CNN, although precise timing is still unclear. Their work heavily scrutinized tense in frustrating conditions. Here, remember, we had the entire planet on our shoulders 24 hours a day uh, for a month, which doesn't uh, make uh, the work among scientists easier. Once in a while, you, uh, as always, with uh, between passionate scientists, you you you, you get uh, you get heated uh, discussion and argumentation about this and that. They hope to return to access biological samples they say China has yet to share, especially hundreds of thousands of blood bank samples from Wuhan dating back two years. China's pledged transparency with the investigation. There is about 200,000 uh, samples uh, in, in, uh, available there that are now uh, uh, secured and could be used for uh, for new set of studies. And you want to look at that urgently? Yeah, that would be uh, that'd be fantastic if we could uh, move with that. Is it not amazing that they haven't already looked through those samples? You could say that, but uh, we understand that these samples are extremely small samples and only used for litigation purpose. So many more questions still to answer. First, if China will let them back in. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, London. So many questions. All right, let's move on because the fight against the virus goes on too. More than 38 million Americans have received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. But as the rollout picks up speed, so does the race against variants of the virus. U.S. researchers have identified several new mutations here in the United States. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, there's a lot going on. The ramp up of vaccines. We've got cases coming down as we seem to be coming off this Thanksgiving Christmas wave that we've seen, but now fresh concerns amid US identified variants. What can you tell us on this? So, Julia, so many of the variants we've been talking about have been found in other parts of the world. We talk about the variant first spotted in the UK, the variant first spotted in South Africa or in Brazil. And many people were wondering, why aren't we hearing about variants arising in the US, which has so many cases? And really, the reason experts tell us is because the US does not do a great job of looking for these variants, and you only find them if you actually look for them. So the US is getting much better about this. And 
and teams at um, Louisiana State University, the University of New Mexico, and other universities have found several variants that are that have arisen in the U.S., homegrown variants, if you will. But I want to add one caveat before we talk about these. Just because something's a variant doesn't mean that it's bad. You can have variants that are really very similar to any other kind of coronavirus. So obviously, still bad. Coronavirus is bad, but not necessarily worse. So let's take a look at what they are, and then I will do more on that. I'll answer more on that question afterwards. So let's take a look at what these researchers found. They looked at seven different so-called homegrown variants, and what they found was that, and they named them after birds, and I'll explain that in a minute too, that a variant that they decided to call raw Robin 1 was found in 30 states, Robin 2, very similar to Robin 1 in 20 states, and Pelican in 13 states in the U.S., along with Australia, Denmark, Switzerland, and India. And then there were four more that they found that were much, much less common, but certainly worth noting. And you can see the geography of it here. Uh, Yellowhammer, Bluebird, Quail, and Mockingbird. So first, let's talk about why they named them after birds, Julia. It does seem strange. It's because naming a variant the UK variant or the South Africa variant, there's concern that it stigmatizes those places. And we don't want to do that. And so that's why they decided to name them after birds. So I guess now we're only stigmatizing birds and hopefully they won't notice. So that's why they named them after birds. But let's talk about what this means. There are three things that you want to think about with variants. One, are these variants more transmissible? Just spoke with the senior author of the study, and he said, look, we have no, we, at this point, we don't have any evidence that they're more transmissible. We're still working on it. Second question is, do they cause more severe disease or do they have a higher death rate? Same answer. We don't, we don't think so at this point, but we're still working on it. They don't know the answer to that question. The third one is, will these variants somehow circumvent or trick the vaccine so the vaccine won't work as well, very happy to tell you that this researcher says that every sign that they've seen so far is that the vaccines will work just fine against these variants. So that is certainly good news. Julia? And we always underscore that point. Variants of any form are not a reason or an excuse not to take a vaccine if you were uh, looking to take a vaccine and and wanted to beforehand. We will reiterate that once again. Um, And I love the point, actually, and I'll make it very quickly about trying to remove some of the stigmatism attached to or the stigma attached to where the variants were identified, because I think this has been a problem for the, for the UK and for South Africa as well. Just because they were identified by these scientists doesn't necessarily mean it was born out of that nation. So very important. Um, talk to me about Israel, because there is an interesting study come from there about the efficacy of vaccines over the spread of infections. And I know you're going to caution me because this data hasn't been seen or peer reviewed, but good signs at least. And we're looking for good news. That's right. So as you said, not published in a medical journal or peer reviewed, but still really interesting data. So Israel, you can think of as kind of the the foundation of the greatest amount of data on this vaccine because they have vaccinated so many of their citizens. So in the clinical trials for these vaccines, they were giving it to tens of thousands of people. In Israel, they're giving it to so far hundreds of thousands or really actually, I think, millions of people. So this is really, really important data. So Israel has a national health service, just like the UK and other and some other European nations. And so they took 1.2 million people in Israel. Half of them had gotten the vaccine and half of them had not. 
And what they found was that they could compare the two and see that the vaccine was 94% effective. This is the Pfizer vaccine. That is very close to what the Pfizer number was out of their clinical trials, very close to the Moderna number, um, which the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are very, very similar. So this is really good news. Sometimes you wonder when you come out of a clinical trial, all right, that's what we found in the trial. What about the real world? Well, they're basically finding the same thing in the real world. And that's great news. Yes, it is. And we like that on this show. Fingers crossed. Elizabeth Cohen, Mm -hmm. great to have you with us and uh, for your insights this morning. Thank you. All right. Next driver, Nissan, joining a growing line of automakers not in talks to build an Apple car, despite reports. To the contrary, questions are swirling around. Who's left as a possible partner? Paul Monica joins me now. Paul, forget the iCar. This is the not iCar, because this is another automaker that's been forced to come out and say, it's not us. Yeah, interestingly, Nissan saying that it is not working with Apple. But if you look at that Financial Times report, it does suggest that there were some discussions that may have been taking place and that Nissan has decided not to really pursue it any further. That comes on the heels of Hyundai and Kia also saying that they are not talking with Apple about building an iCar, an Apple car, whatever you want to call it. So I think a lot of people are still wondering, will there ever be any sort of Apple branded vehicle on four wheels? Or is it going to be the type of thing where Apple just continues to develop technology for cars, but not an actual Apple branded truck, sedan, what have you, et cetera? Yeah, and that's a great question. I would say there's no smoke without fire here. And clearly there are some kind of discussions. Some of the reporting from elsewhere suggested that it was partly a problem of uh, Apple wanting to take a car that's made by an automaker and brand it an Apple car. So they lose some of the, the, the branding benefits here. Analyst, and he's a well-known analyst, um, Ming-Chi Kuo said he believed the Apple car will be built on Hyundai's EGMP platform, um, shipping in 2025 at the earliest. And of course, the story began with Hyundai initially saying they were working on it, and then they came out and denied it and said that they weren't. And of course, we know that Apple is a very, very private company. So one has to wonder whether something's going on behind the scenes, even if no one's confirming anything at the moment. Definitely. And uh, you still have other potential companies out there that could be in play as well. There are some reports suggesting BMW might be another player. But the one that I find most intriguing that some people are talking about is this company Magna, which is sort of like a Foxconn, if you will, of cars in that they could contract out and make cars for Apple with an Apple branded name because they do have some relationships with other big automakers where they do make cars that other brands' names get put on it. So that might be an intriguing option for Apple as well if they look to find a third party that isn't interested in having their brand name on a car so that maybe Apple Car, iCar, whatever, winds up being something that uh, you know hits the market. Aha, you may have heard it here first. I like your thinking. Paul and Monica, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Mandatory quarantine is now in effect for all UK citizens and permanent residents entering England from dozens of coronavirus hotspots. 
Those who visited a country on the UK's travel ban list must quarantine in a hotel for 10 days. Arrivals from other countries still must quarantine at home. Salma Abdulaziz is in London with all the details for us. Great to uh, have you join us. Just explain exactly how this is going to work. Well, Juliet, all went into force today. The health secretary on the radio saying it's all gone smoothly. So how does it work? Basically, if you arrive and you're coming from one of those 33 red list countries at the airport, there's only four airports that you can land in. At the airport, you can be put through a specific channel. You're going to have paid and have booked ahead of time for that government sanctioned quarantine in a hotel. It'll be about 1750 in terms of pounds. That's about 2500 US dollars. If you're one of those travelers, you'll then that that cost will include your transportation, your food, your accommodation, all of that. So once you arrive in the airport, you'll be escorted to that hotel quarantine. That is where you'll stay for 10 days. You'll also be tested twice during that quarantine on day two and day eight. Once that's complete, those tests are negative. After that 10th day, you can re-enter the UK. Now, of course, the concern here is all these variants that are popping up around the world. That's why you see a lot of South American countries and a lot of countries in Africa on that list of 33. But there's also been a great deal of controversy as well, with some saying this doesn't go far enough. The The controversy here is around the UK's crown gem, its vaccination program. More than 15 million people have received their first dose of the vaccine, and the authorities simply want to protect those gains from any other variants that could enter the UK. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Particularly even just the simple thing like arrivals and people using bathrooms in arrivals and then going off in different directions, whether it's quarantine or, or home. Um, hmm. We shall watch this space. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, still to come on First Move, it's a cinch. I'm joined by the Swedish comms company that makes it easier for companies to communicate with their customers. And they say love is priceless, but a $10 tree for Africa lasts forever. Later in the show, the daughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu is here with a heartwarming project. Stay with us. We're back next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are closed for the President's Day holiday after pushing to fresh records on Friday. But a banner day for Japan. The Nikkei rallied almost 2% to more than a 30-year high after strong growth data. Oil, meanwhile, also having a strong session. Both Brent and U.S. crude sitting at fresh 12-month highs. Hopes for economic reopenings and more fiscal stimulus helping drive sentiment there too. Now, with impeachment proceedings finally over in Washington, Congress can also focus more of its attention on boosting emergency aid for needy Americans. Trillions of dollars worth of stimulus already in the pipeline have helped boost global stocks overall and given a lift perhaps to other assets too, like Bitcoin and the once popular Reddit stocks. All this leading to a certain worry about speculative froth, excess liquidity and the inevitable question, where is the market's top? Mohamed Alarian joins us now. He's the Chief Economic Advisor at Lyons. He's the President of Queen's College at Cambridge University. Mohamed, fantastic to have you on the show as always. You know, the data that surprised me and probably shouldn't have done in the past week was the inflows into equities. $58 billion and, to illustrate the liquidity phenomenon, bonds also $13 billion of inflows. What do you make of that at this point in time? Thanks for having me, Julia. Um, what I make of it is that investors are chasing what someone labeled the rational bubble. Investors know that asset prices are very high, but there's reason to believe they'll go even higher. Why? 
because in addition to massive central bank liquidity injection, there are real prospects of massive fiscal injections on top. So basically, investors feel confident riding what is a massive historic liquidity wave. Do you buy the the relatively muted inflation data that we got on Friday? Um, Or do you share the concerns of those like Bill Dudley, the former head of the New York Fed, who said, look, um, there are a number of reasons to worry here. One, the recovery is going to be faster than we think. Corporates have cash. Individuals, by and large, have cash or will be getting some more. And people believe inflation will rise. How concerned are you? So I think we're going to see the price level change by more than what the Fed is expecting. Where there will be a massive debate is, is that an inflationary process or is that a once and for all increase in price level as we reopen? What's interesting is the market may not wait for that. And that's Hmm. the concern out there, that when the market sees the price level go up by more than what the Fed is expecting, they will worry. And already you have seen bond yields on longer dated securities go up. So there is concern and you're starting to see it in the marketplace. Because there's a timing mismatch there. You can have fueled by all the liquidity, the hopes for reopening, vaccines flooding the market, recovery theme driving stocks. And even before you see the whites in the eyes of inflation, a reaction to all of that in the bond market. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's two timing mismatches. One is in the real economy. Mm. Um, Economists make a difference between notional demand, what we'd like to do, and effective demand, what we are able to do. And right now, our notional demand is much higher than our effective demand. We can't travel. There's a whole host of things we can't do. So as we reopen, our effective demand goes up to notional demand. So there's a lot more demand in the economy, but the supply may not respond as quickly. That's the first mistiming. The second is that bond prices start to move before actual inflation. They move on the expectation of inflation, which would put the Fed in a really difficult position. What does it do? Does it let yields go up and risk equity market disturbances that then feed back into the economy? Or alternatively, do they get pulled in even more in intervening and distorting markets? That's not a great position to be in. But what do you think? Which one? I think they'll be tempted to do the second because that's what they've been doing all along. Um, And they'll hide behind the we got to give this economy every chance. But the more you distort markets, the more you distort asset allocation, the more you reduce efficiency and productivity. So this is not a costless exercise. There is a lot of collateral damage and unintended consequences. I mean, we should talk about the people that get left behind and the fact that it does, whether you like it or not, exacerbate the inequality that we see in society and keep talking about trying to address. But in the interim, we, we make it worse by trying to support more a further support for uh, the, the sort of weakest part and element of the of the economy, as we quite rightly should do. I'm struggling to compute the everything rally that we seem to be seeing here with signs, classic signs of a market top, um, froth in the IPO market, um, fundraising going gangbusters. Can we continue to see both of these things for a significant period of time, simply because what we're seeing now in terms of stimulus is so unprecedented? So we can unless one of two things happen. One is a market accident. 
And I think people don't sufficiently appreciate how close we got to a market accident a few weeks ago with Reddit, Robinhood, and certain stocks. We came very close to a market accident, and it would have had what is called contagion. It would have contaminated other things. So the first danger is all this excessive risk-taking becomes irresponsible risk-taking, and you get a market accident. The second risk is the bond market, that if you destabilize the bond market, you take away two reasons why people are so keen on stocks. One, this notion there's no alternative. Well, if yields go up, there is an alternative. And second, this notion that with yields that low, flawed forever, discounted um, cash flow models signal buy, buy, buy for equities. So that's the two risks that a lot of us are monitoring. But getting the timing right is really hard. Is there risk of an accident in digital assets in Bitcoin? Because for all the excitement in what we saw with GameStop, there's a similar level of um, <laughs> euphoria, excitement in digital assets, Bitcoin, for example, but some of the others too, which have also had a gangbusters run over the last 12 months, particularly. Is there a risk of an accident here if that pulls back too, Mohammed? So here the risk comes from the official sector. There's a massive contrast. On the one hand, the private sector is embracing more and more Bitcoins as both a form of payment and as a way to invest. And and the Tesla announcement of putting in 1.5 billion of their cash management into Bitcoins and saying they're going to accept Bitcoins as payments is a perfect example of that. So the private sector is embracing it more. The official sector is warning more about Bitcoins. They're worried about what's happening. So the real accident here is that the official sector says enough is enough. And that's that's the risk that as as that Bitcoins holders have right now. It is not adoption as much as it is mm. will the official sector allow this to continue. Do you expect more companies very quickly to take some of the cash in their balance sheets and invest in digital assets, as we've seen Tesla do? Or do you think they're a unique case? No, I I think you'll see more companies do that. And it's because they don't know how else to mitigate risk. So it's part of the distortions of the financial markets that we're seeing more generally. Wow. Mohammed, always great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Mohammed Alarian, Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz and the President of Queen's College, Cambridge University. Thank you, sir. You're watching First Move, more to come. Welcome back to First Move. Cinch is a platform powering the latest innovation in customer service. In its own words, Cinch quotes, lets businesses reach every mobile phone on the planet in seconds or less through mobile messaging, voice and video. In other words, Cinch is the middleman that lets companies contact customers on their phones. Joining us now is Oscar Werner. He's the CEO of Cinch. Oscar, fantastic to have you on the show. We stole some of your words there, but in your own words, what is the company? What's the ambition here? So thank you. Um, so Cinch is, I mean, our vision is uh, simplifying life by bringing all people and businesses closer together. Uh, what we mean by that is what we do is a cloud communication for messaging, voice and video. So if any enterprise on the planet want to do a video call with their consumers, they want to do a voice call with the consumers or they want to use messaging channels such as WhatsApp or Apple Business Chat or RCS or text messaging. We can power that globally. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, there's never been a more important time for for firms to be connected with their customers digitally. We've seen a huge rise in e-commerce, in all sorts of acceleration in digitization. And not only as a result of that, but fueled by that, your growth has been astronomical, bigger than the sector itself. So you're clearly gaining market share. Yeah, what fascinates me about this market is I've yet to meet one single person that is not a consumer of these type of services. Mm. All of my friends, mm. all of your friends, everybody has done a video call with a doctor or a voice call to the right hailing app, or or they kind of used to you know, get a message from the dentist. So this is it's like every single person is a user. And that also means that almost every single enterprise that wants to communicate with the consumers or with their staff is a potential customer. And I have never been in such a market market. This is the same penetration as mobile phones. And that is also powered. We do 126 billion, what we call engagements. That's a voice call, a video call or messages. 126 billion a year. That means that we on average touch every single mobile phone on the planet on average 14 times per year. Um, I mean, these are uh, astonishing statistics. You also have, as part of your client base, eight I believe, of the 10 largest tech companies in the world. I mean, communication, nothing more important for these guys in particular to have top notch. And if they're not happy with your services, then they go somewhere else. How do you differentiate yourself? Because there are other players out there that, that do similar as you. And that's that's been the core to the foundation. And it's, it speaks to what we were founded on. We were founded on service quality, you know, we are the leader in the, on the world in high quality, especially international service quality. So some, when somebody like one of these big tech companies want to power messages to every single company in the world or every single country in the world with zero latency and extremely high quality, that's when they find us. And they have gone through the rounds, they tested a couple of rounds of suppliers and many of them luckily have seen, right, in terms of service quality, we really truly stand out. And I think that's why you grow. And as you can imagine, there's no way of servicing these companies if you don't have a good service quality because they would test you every second of the day to every country on the planet. Algorithmically, they test your systems, which is obviously great for us because then our service quality to, to them, we can increase it and, and all to all other customers as well, of course. Yeah, and if you underperform, you're dumped. It's, it's really simple. Um, you also <laughs> have described, you've also described yourself as being profitable from day one. Describe what that means, because I know you recently took some money from SoftBank and you've said this is to fuel acquisitions, but profitable from day one, Oscar? Yeah, this it, this is a fascinating stuff. I'm not a founder, so I, I should attribute it to this to the founder. But but the founders of this business, the only they put in $10,000 of share capital and the company has been profitable ever since on its own cash flow never needed one single dollar to fund its operations. Wow. So $10,000. Yeah, $10,000, yeah, $10, which is hard to imagine, right? And the, any money we've taken in has always been for doing acquisitions, um, uh, but for funding the operations, always been profitable. And that's core to the company. It's like, how do you build a business by delivering enough value or large amounts of value to the customers in order to make a profit at all times. And I think that's core and ingrained in our culture, in our company. And, and, I, and we're very, very proud of that, of course. Um, um, 
talk to me about growth opportunities because I know you've done an acquisition in Latin America, but India is also an area that you're eyeing as huge opportunity. Yeah, the, the, there are growth opportunities in, in many areas in this business. You know, if you, if you would speak to somebody like Gartner, they would see that CPAS offering global enterprises, probably 20% buy them today, while 2023, their Gartner's projection is that 90% of global enterprise will leverage API-enabled CPAS offerings. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a market that is growing very rapidly. And the underlying reason for that is very simple, right? The mobile communication channel is very powerful. Um, the reason text messages exists today is that you can reach any person on the planet within seconds. And that is the only channel you can do that with. It's got 98% open rate and 95% read rate within three minutes. And that is obviously much better than, t than email. Um, uh, if you want to have a short message, a long message you can because it's 160 characters, but if you want to reach anybody, that's a very powerful channel. What's happening now though, is there's a lot of new channels coming on market like WhatsApp, you know, Facebook Messenger, Apple Business Chat, RCS, WeChat, KakaoTalk, Line, Telegram. There's a lot of new channels coming onto market which, in which you can do more than 160 characters. You can, in principle, send an app to the phone, to your inbox, instead you get an app. So imagine being on the, on the air, airport. If you got a mail saying your flight is canceled, you wouldn't notice, right? So you miss it. If you get a text, you notice, and then you go to the, to the you call the customer care agent. You could get an RCS or, 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 or a WhatsApp message saying, hey, um, um, your flight is canceled. These are three options to rebook. Click one and you rebook autom automatically. Oh, there are three, like music are three to my ears. <laughs> These are the three hotels. Click one and you, re and, and you book them automatically. And this is a meal voucher. Now, it's easy to see. That's a 10x better service for you as a consumer because you get rebooked faster and you can have a happier customer. Uh, it's a 10 expected service for the enterprise because what happens to them, happier customer, um, rebooked faster, but it's also, they, they don't have to have a $5 phone call into the customer care centers. They avoid a communication via voice and you're a happier customer. So I think I we can agree that's a growth opportunity. I see the vision, I certainly do. Come back and talk to us soon. Oscar, great to chat to you, the CEO of Cinch there. And that certainly sounded like a Cinch compared to what it can be like. Thank you. All right, up next, after the break, never mind chocolates. It's never too late to tell someone you love them for Valentine's Day. What about a $10 tree for Africa that lasts forever? I hope this project will warm your heart as much as it does mine. Details after the break. Welcome back to First Move, an uplifting campaign that brings together the environment, empowerment and justice. It's a topic that's very close to my heart and I'll explain why in a moment. Stretching the width of Africa, the Great Green Wall is a barrier against desertification. Once complete, it will be the largest living structure on the planet. Now, the Julia Tree Initiative has a challenge, and that's to plant and nurture a million trees along the wall Inspired by the legend of St. Valentine, they act as a symbol of enduring love. Take a look. Heartbroken by Valentine's execution, Julia plants a seedling as a testimony to their eternal love. 
As you'll hear, this project goes beyond helping the economy and the environment ecosystem as important as they are. It's also for the education of girls, empowerment for women and racial justice worldwide. And it is my huge honour to be an ambassador for the initiative. Now, one of the forces behind this project is Enfo Tutu Van Firth. She's the executive director and co-founder of the Tutu Teach Foundation and is also the daughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who is a patron of the initiative. Enfo, fantastic to have you on the show. I am so excited, can I just say, to be part of this. Um, I think we should start just by explaining what the Great Green Wall is and, and how it's already helping. Well, the Great Green Wall is an initiative of the African Union, and it is to be um, a wall of trees, um, growing trees that spread across uh, the Sahel um, and the northern dry rim of Africa, as well as now into the southern African drylands. Uh, when the wall is realized, it will be more than um, 8,000 kilometers or 5,000 miles long across the whole um, of Africa, going from um, e uh, west to, to, to east or east to west. And it's about building out the ecosystem, giving farmers uh, the chance to feed their families, to produce a living. And also part of this as well is, as I mentioned, the education of women in some of these communities, which I know you're incredibly passionate about, too. I am. Um, as you as you say, it is absolutely a, a way to combat desertification um, and the consequences of desertification, which have been visited very heavily on women and on children. Um, and so this this great green wall will grow trees, grow fruiting trees across Africa to combat um, the effects of desertification. And we know that um, it is indeed an African problem and an African solution to an African problem, but it's also an African solution to a global problem. Yes. Um, climate change doesn't just affect Africa, it actually affects the whole world. Uh, to plant fruiting trees um, across this this uh, rim of of Africa um, will provide jobs for women, will enable girls to go to school, um, will uh, stop the scourge of migration as people flee in search of. A best, of better work and of a better life for themselves and for their families. Um, we are walking, working together with um, Hope Initiatives International and Orgis, which is an organization for indigenous um, initiatives and sustainability in Ghana, um, to actually grow these trees. And as you know, um, a tree um, may not take that much to plant, but it takes five to 15 years before right. most of the indigenous trees are providing fruit, are fruiting. And so the initiative isn't just about planting trees, but it's actually growing trees and growing communities as we are able to put people to work on that sustainable job of, of growing these far this forest. And it's going to take time. And actually, as part, and you've sort of mentioned it, the Julia Tree Challenge, and I mentioned it too, is planting one million trees. 
and planting season is July, August time. So we have to get cracking on this. Um, but what I really loved about this was the story behind it and why we're doing this around Valentine's Day and the sort of untold story of the relationship between Valentine and Julia. And for just give us a sense of that too, because this is also on the website that people can, can watch and understand. Yes. So we are absolutely delighted to have you, Julia, as our ambassador. And we asked you to be our ambassador for two reasons. One, because you're absolutely um, wonderful and a, and a great example of women's empowerment. Um, but two, because of you were blessed with the name Julia. And Julia was the blind daughter of Valentine's jailer. And the jailer asked Valentine to bless his daughter and then asked uh, Valentine to be her teacher. And we don't know how long that teaching relationship continued, but when Valentine was scheduled for execution, he scrawled a note to Julia and signed it from your Valentine and thus launched a thousand love messages um, throughout the ages. Um, and Julia, in her heartbreak, planted a tree at Valentine's gravesite, a flowering almond tree at Valentine's gravesite, and so launched an initiative that will grow a million trees across the Sahel. I love it. And I loved it from the first moment that I heard it. And I'm grateful to be asked to do this. I'm also grateful to my parents as well for naming me Julia, which is an <laughs> uncanny, uncanny coincidence. Fabulous. We love that. Um, and it's $10 to plant a tree. And in my world, Valentine's Day is every day. You don't have to wait for one day of the year. So we have to get cracking and we just hope people will understand how incredible this is, how important it is to your point, not just for the region that we're trying to replant, but also for the entire nation, because we understand that, that sustainability, climate change is something that we all have to take ownership of. Absolutely. And as you say, Valentine's Day may be one day of the year, but love is something that we need to um, to underline and, um, and uh, celebrate every day of the year. And this is a way of celebrating love that continues to, to give um, into the future. Couldn't have said it better myself, so I'm glad I had you here to do it. Big heart to you, and I wore my red shirt especially. And I will tweet out all the details so people get a sense of this, but um, it's just the beginning. Enfo, great to have you with us. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm excited to begin. Take care, and thank you for joining us. All right, coming up, Jaguar jumping into the global race to go electric. It's transformation plan under a new CEO next. Welcome back to First Move. Jaguar Land Rover under fresh leadership now unveiling its plans for electric vehicles. The UK-based carmaker says every JLR model will have an electric option by 2030. Anna Stewart spoke with the company's new CEO and she joins us live from London. Exciting times, although everyone's getting in on this act, Anna. What did the CEO have to say? 
Well, we're expecting this big, ambitious strategy to be unveiled since he became CEO last year. It's perhaps not as ambitious, though, as some analysts were expecting, at least in terms of the cost-cutting, Julia. All of the UK plants are to remain, although some of them will be repurposed. No job cuts expected at this stage. Uh, And the big slim-down that was expected in their car portfolio hasn't happened either, just one car being scrapped. Uh, the Jaguar XJ. It's all about, as you said, the transition to electric. All Jaguar models will be all electric by 2025. And for the Land Rovers, they'll have all electric versions by the end of the decade. But it's not just about electric, is it? It's about autonomous. It's about the future. And every day it feels we're getting more and more rumors about Apple entering the fray. So that is what I asked the CEO about. Is he concerned about that potential competition? I think it makes a lot of sense that the tech company are getting interested in in the car company. Why? Because the car is visibly, for all of us, the next connected object. And it's an expectation as well from all our customers so far. Have you had any discussions with Apple? Oh, you know, we are, we are discussing with uh, everyone. <laughs> all, all leaders of the industry we have discussion with. And it's, it's part of the way we are always uh, uh, envisaging the, the next partnerships that we may have. Of course, uh, Jaguar Land Rover really lacks the scale that Apple is probably looking for if they are indeed looking for a car partner. And that, Julia, could be the big problem for this car company going forward. Yes, it's the biggest car maker here in the UK, but on a global stage, it's a bit of a minnow when you look ahead, not just electrification, but also connectivity and, of course, autonomous driving. Great questions, Anna. Apple relationship. I love that you asked that. All, all you also had to ask was whether they're going to have Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Did you ask that question? Oh, next time, Julia. Oh. Next time. Top, top question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stuart, great job, my friend, as always. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson. It's next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.